And we are live. Welcome to the Citadel Builders podcast. This show revolves around discussions with pleb builders actively looking to create and develop circular economies, advance the use of Bitcoin for long-term savings and day-to-day transactions. We aim to raise awareness of the dangers of ever encroaching government and corporate surveillance, showing people how to take practical steps to increase their privacy and sovereignty. In so doing, we aim to add our voices to those fighting to reduce the corruption made possible by fiat money and its destructive consequences. Block by block, we build and participate in the circular Bitcoin economy of free and sovereign individuals. This show is hosted by we three gentlemen, the ever pessimistic Doomer Dash, the overly contemplative Meta Mike, and me, the always affable and amicable Andy. We are a value for value podcast, so we recommend a thousand sat boost. As always, we begin with the Japan segment. Dash, what are we talking about? Gentlemen, thank you. Um, well, firstly, it was a, a slightly quiet week this week on the news front, um, but there was a couple of interesting things that I saw, and so I wanted to highlight them. I'll be reiterating themes that we've discussed on previous episodes, but perhaps digging into them a little bit more and try and project out in the future where you know where this is taking us. And so the first thing um, that I wanted to talk about this week was the demographics. And so it was announced that the new births in Japan in 2022 um, actually dropped below 800,000, um, which is it's highly significant for a couple of reasons. Um, so firstly, that's 5.1% down from the previous year, from 2021. Um, so you look at this chart, it looks like a shitcoin chart during a bear market, you know. Um, it's precipitously dropping. And it's actually the lowest number since, get this, 1899. Um, and it's actually um, under a third of the peak of new births, which was recorded in 1949. And that year saw was blessed with 2.69 million um, Japanese born uh, in this in this country. Um, so, so, you know, which is just absolutely dropping like a stone now. And, you know, the, the reason that this is significant is because um, the government has actually made projections on the population going forward and remember that the government uses these projections to make real world decisions like for example around budgets planning for social security and things like this and they had actually anticipated or planned or projected that this number would be hit in 2033 right so we're 11 years ahead of schedule um in this um you know this demographic time bomb um and so you know to me it's just like the whole social security sort of ponzi scheme collapse is really accelerating now um and you know this is really significant now this is being blamed on lack of weddings during covid and um you know a a lot of that's of course the fault of the government anyway because of things like movement restrictions and restrictions on um you know venues etc etc um but you know i i think if you look at the you know the other data available it paints a different story so you know one one of a a poll that i saw um said that um, 77% of people who were asked, you know, who, who, who responded that they were not planning to have children, the reason that they gave was because it cost too much money. Um, and so I think really this is the, the core of why Japanese people are not having children. This is personally my, my, my belief, and I think the data backs that up. Um, and so that's, that's kind of the backdrop for um, 
something that we're seeing now uh, since the new year, which is the, in Japanese, the neage rush. So it's this rush of the consumer goods corporate, you know, companies, uh, famous brands, etc., who are, who are rushing to increase their prices now while everybody else is doing it. Very, very Japanese. Um, and so, I mean, this is just accelerating and accelerating and accelerating now. I'm going to give you a few concrete examples coming up. But I also just wanted to highlight the backdrop to this, which is Japanese have, I mean, there's this image of Japan as being, you know, advanced, futuristic, uh, you know, technology, blah, blah, blah. Um, the truth is that Japanese have the lowest average wages in the G7. Um, and not only that, but according to this OECD data uh, that I looked at, they're actually ranked 24th out of 34 countries um, in terms of the average wage. And so they were overtaken by Korea in 2015. Yep, people in Korea earn more money than in people in Japan, and uh, they're now lower than Italy. So this is the state of Japan right now. People are, you know, this is effect effectively now a, a poor country, if you look at the av average wages. And, you know, uh, against that backdrop, prices are increasing. And if you look, it's across the board by 5 to 30%, all happening this month, next month, and in May. Um, and, you know, what are the kind of things that are being impacted? It's everything. It's all the consumer goods. But I wanted to highlight a few things. One is uh, Black Thunder Chocolate, Black Sunda. Anybody in Japan knows Black Thunder Chocolate. Um, it's, it's going up 16% from March, right? Um, or if you look at Denny's, famous um, uh, family restaurant out here in Japan. Um, so if you go and order a hamburger in Denny's, a ha sort of ha hamburger without the bread, which is very popular in Japan, it's, uh, it's going up 5% um, from May. And also, um, very also something that if you're in Japan, you'll see is very common. Um, uh, Boss Rainbow Mountain Coffee, these small tins of coffee which people like to buy from vending machines or, or convenience stores. This is going up 21% from May. Um, and you know there has been news about corporations, uh, at least the labor unions at these corporations, raise, raising wages or negotiating to raise wages. We've heard of SoftBank, uh, Honda, KDDI. They're all talking about like a 5% increase. Um, so, okay, you know, for people working in those famous corporations, they can cover the minimum price rises that we're seeing. Um, but the fact is the people working for these famous corporations, they're, they're middle class. They're not even eating Black Thunder chocolate or drinking Boss coffee. You know, they're going to Starbucks, they're eating good chocolate, right? So, I mean, this is hitting the, um, the average pleb in Japan far harder than it's hitting the, um, the sort of middle class. And this, to me, is the heart of why, you know, Jap Japan cannot, you know, people cannot afford to start families. People cannot afford to have children. They can barely even afford to buy chocolate, right? Um, and I just wanted to make a prediction based on, on this. I've been thinking about this for a while now, but, um, and I've actually even seen some anecdotal reports of young Japanese who are choosing to leave Japan for better opportunities, right? Um, and so, for example, I read about a sushi chef who in Japan um, was working uh, for a sushi restaurant, wasn't even allowed to make sushi. Okay, so for the first several years of your career in Japan as a sushi chef, you've just got to do menial tasks like answer the phone or, or clean the toilets. They won't let you do the sushi. Um, but this, this guy was able to go across to America, to New York, work in a sushi restaurant there, immediately start actually making sushi and earn double the salary he was getting in Japan. Right. So I, I predict that, you know, this this the demographic situation, the situation with taxes here, the, the inflation, the, the cheap yen, it's all going to um, sort of. 
um, reach a, a crescent, crescendo where young Japanese choose to leave this country for better opportunities overseas. I think we're going to see that trend uh, strongly going forward. Gentlemen, what, what do you think about that? Do you agree with that prediction? I am. Um, I'm, I'm right behind you on, on that prediction to a certain extent. One of the difficulties with the Japanese leaving, though, right, is the strong social cohesion. So despite the pull out i'm curious how they'll respond to the fact that a lot of them don't like to leave for long periods of time they're not migratory you know like uh latin american uh latin american folk or african folk they do like to stay within their own their own sphere uh whether or not economic realities kind of push some uh, you know push that that reality uh to the side for a time is is a is another question, but the demographic, um, yeah, that that that's an interesting question, Mike. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I I don't know, I don't follow this, so I don't know how many people are leaving. I mean, I would be that that does sound concerning if if a lot of people are leaving like that. And I guess the corollary to it is that a lot of foreigners are going to be coming in, and I think that trend has accelerated as well over the last few years. Um, and you can you can already see a lot of. Um, especially service workers, it seems, are immigrants nowadays. Yeah, yeah. and almost every, especially in Tokyo, any any 7-Eleven or whatever you go to, a, a good number of the staff are going to be um, some other Southeast Asian. Um, yeah, I don't, I mean, the, they've, they've resisted the pull in and they've resisted, the, I mean, basically, I mean, what I'm trying to, I don't know, I'm stumbling my, at my words to get across here, but something, it, it does seem to me something's got to give. Either somebody's got to come in or some people are going to have to start going out, right? That's kind of the conclusion of uh, what you're reading, Dash. Yeah, I mean that's that's it. And, and gentlemen, you're right about the the patterns of immigration as well. So it's interesting. So if you're if you're in China, for example, you can look across at Japan, and as um, if you can get here and you can start work here, you can earn two to three times what you can in China still. Um, but then the, the young Japanese are looking, you know, across the Pacific, and they're saying, well, we can earn two three times maybe if go to go to the states. So it's going to be interesting to see. I, yeah, I do predict um, as young Japanese leave Japan, we will see an increase in immigration to fill that gap, and that will lightly come from sort of Southeast Asia, China. Um, I actually saw I what I believe was a Ukrainian in a convenience store uh, this week, which was interesting. It's the first time I'd, I'd seen kind of, kind of, you know, a white guy basically working in a convenience store. I think it was the second time I'd seen that. But so I, I think we're going to see the, yeah, I mean, people going both ways. But the, I mean, the interesting thing is, I think, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of, kind of a touchy subject. And I, I want to be careful with my words here, but I, I feel like it's a good deal for, um, the likes of America, Australia, Canada, the EU, who are getting Japanese workers to come and work because, you know, in my experience, Japanese tend to be very highly educated, um, you know, across the class spectrum. So even, you know, it's not like you have to be in the upper class, upper middle class to have a good grounding education in Japan. The typical Japanese will be, will you know, will be good, will be numerate, will be literate. Um and also that, you know, Japanese tend to be diligent, tend to be good, uh, good, good workers. So I just feel it's a good deal maybe for um, the, com the, the countries who are, who are getting the, the Japanese. And maybe it's a bad deal for Japan. Any, any thoughts on that? I, I, would, I think I would tend to agree with that. Yeah, Japanese people going and working elsewhere. I think that's going to be really good for wherever they end up. Um, and, and any companies that hire them, they'll, they'll do a good job. I, what I'm curious about when it comes to the demographics, and I, I, I'm curious what you think, or has, has anyone run the numbers 
on like, let's say the uh, fertility trends reversed right around now and Japanese people just aggressively started having babies. Like, is it, is it already too late where there's going to be too long of a period where the younger um, segment of the workforce is just non-existent and you have all these retirees who need to be supported and no one's there to support them so that there will have to be a ton of immigrants brought in anyway. Yeah. I, yeah. I, if you go, by, if, if you go by that, um, you know, not to, to bring up the, 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 the schmuck, uh, Peter, Peter Zahan, but he's good on the demographic side of things. Like he, like, if you look at those charts and the, you know, he's got those, those well laid out graphs of the population, the, 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 the bottom of the pyramid that should have the, the biggest numbers, the way that it, that, that it's laid out now, it, you couldn't correct, you couldn't correct this problem in time to not have that demographic implosion problem that Japan is looking at. Even if you have everybody, every woman is required to have six kids now, you, you, there'll be a, a period of time when it's just going to be mad. There would be like mass chaos where you'd have, you know, a bunch of infants and old people and nobody in the middle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, uh, rest assured, Mike, Kishida, our, our dear leader, is actually he's making this his top priority, um, apparently, um, and he's coming up with some kind of plan, which is going to be announced this month, I believe. Um, so, you know, fingers crossed, it could be that he's going to, you know, halve income tax and, uh, you know, half the size of the government, um, maybe take Japan back to the gold standard or, or Bitcoin standard, to hard money standard. Um, and, and that we do see, you know, the, the, the ground laid for people to be able to save and, 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 and afford to have families. But I don't know, probably wouldn't hold my breath on that one. Yeah, no, because he's going to hand out wife to all of us. <laughs> yeah, I think that was more Ab- that was Abe's plan, right? Well, Abe, Abe was just like print money, and you know, maybe maybe something good will happen. But I don't, I don't know. Did he have anything else other than that? No, I'm just joking. I, I don't really know. Um, but uh, uh, I guess did you guys see that uh, Texas is now implementing a new policy? Uh, well, okay, so Texas is a state with no income tax anyway, but they do have, I believe, on average, the highest property tax in the U.S. Um, but they just, or they're about to implement some new policy, I saw, where the more kids you have, the lower your property tax rate will be. And it was something like, you'll get a 40%. I think right off the bat, if you're just married, then you'll uh, you'll get a lower property tax rate, or it'll be reduced by a certain percentage. And it was like, if you have two kids, it'll be reduced by 40%. And then all like it progressively increases or gets reduced more and more with each subsequent kid that you have with, if you have like 10 kids, then it, uh, you just have no property tax. Um, and I, that would be interesting. I think some other countries have with, with, um, birth rate problems. Like I think Hungary has something similar to this. Um, they've implemented similar policies and it would be interesting to see something like that implemented in Japan. Because I think in Japan, I don't know how property taxes work here, but like, I think no matter which prefecture you live in, your income tax is basically the same. And there's like a health, there's like a local tax rate, a national tax rate, and uh, like a health insurance tax, and it's all just based on your income. And I, but I think like no matter which prefecture you're in, it's it's they're slightly different rates, but they're all pretty much the same. Um, but that would be cool if, if there was a policy like that, like have to have have more than two kids and then like your 
your tax rate goes down by X percent. And like, if you had enough kids, it was no taxes. Yeah, my, my understanding is that they, they are, Kashida is looking at something uh, to do with taxes. It's not property taxes, what I've seen. It's more based on income tax. So, um, and I think his model is more, I think the model they're looking at is more the European, um, the, the Nordic countries, um, which they're, they're looking to sort of mimic there. But I'll, I'll get some more details and maybe we can talk about that on a, on a future segment. I don't know. Are you, guys, yeah. so you are you are you convinced that it is the money though? Because I mean, look at the um, it. It doesn't seem because they've tried the money thing elsewhere, and it doesn't really have the the effect. This is a cultural, spiritual, whatever kind of problem you want, however you want to classify it. It seems that you know between uh, jamming ourselves into three megalopolis cities in this country, and you know a a, a, a cultural. Uh, declension such that we have, you know, almost a nihilistic outlook for the future that it doesn't, I mean, they could throw $10 million at your average Japanese person. It's not going to get them to have any more kids. They just, you know, would continue to drink canned coffee, sit in the apartment and, you know, put it in the bank. What if they give you one Bitcoin per kid? How many more? Are you well, having? I mean, uh, I'll have I'll have all the kids they want. Like I said, they can give me an extra <laughs> couple of wives, and, and may have, I'll start a harem, and we'll have a, like a little compound here. I mean, I I don't I'm not the issue though. I'm actually not Japanese. You know what I mean? Like, so yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, that's a good question. I mean, like 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 Dash was saying, like if they're if they're gonna be blaming it on things like no weddings during COVID, I mean, that's just nonsense. But cost, I think is a factor but like you said it's not the only factor and yeah that, that's probably something worth in, investigating because i mean when you look it up it's always the standard narrative like oh it's too expensive everyone had to move to the cities there's not enough space in the city so like even your apartment can only fit one or two kids maybe and uh, everybody moved out of the countryside because there were no jobs there everything all the jobs got moved to the urban areas uh, women are prioritizing career, like it's it's those kinds of things, and I, I think all of those are factors. But maybe there are some hidden, um, some hidden factors that people aren't really paying as much attention to. Yeah, I, I agree, and I, I you raise a good point, Andy. And you know, maybe it isn't all the money. I mean, I mean, it could have something to do with the fact that people have have had this um, environmental propaganda for how, for what decades now, telling them that they're using too much carbon, and you know, they're a blight on the face of the earth. It, you know, that kind of message reinforced from schooling through adulthood could, yeah, have have a big a big factor to play here in why people are choosing not to have families. I, I fully agree with you. So yeah, just I, I wanted to finish the segment on an, another prediction. I wanted to maybe have a little bit of fun here. I, I mean, it, it isn't really funny, but you've got to try and do what you can, right, um, with what you've got. And um, so I, we we had announced on a previous uh, episode that in Japan we have this magic date, March thirteenth, where our dear leader Kishida has um, declared that it will it will be safe for one to remove one's mask at one's own discretion. And that's the the sort of the key uh, wording here is that it will be left up to an individual's discretion as to what they do, whether they choose to remove their mask or not. And this applies to both indoors and outdoors. Um, and so when I first saw this, I was, um, you know, I was naively uh, kind of happy and I thought, great, from March 13th, no more masks. And I started to think about it more, but also I started to notice, um, you know, uh, the, the, the news, for example, went around and interviewed some Japanese people. And the common sort of thing we're hearing is that um, people are going to kind of look around them and see what other people are doing. And then they're going to make a, a, their decision, which I, I should have known 
I've, I've lived this country long enough. I should have known that was going to be the case. And so my, my prediction is going to be that even after the magic date of March 13th passes, where our dear leader, Kishida, has declared uh, uh, amnesty and safety from, from that date, um, I, I think we're still going to see, I'm going to say, 95% plus people wearing masks um, out and about in town. Gentlemen, agree, disagree. Oh, absolutely. Sadly, they're not take. I mean, the the likelihood of the Japs taking this mask off is is almost nil. They love this damn mask thing. I mean, they get to hide behind the mask so nobody sees them. No makeups involved. Um, you know, the uh, you can have. You don't have to. You know, for your average Japanese salaryman, now you don't ever have to brush your teeth because now your 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 terrible breath can stay within your own. You know. Uh, sphere of uh, you know influence there. Um, I I have a hard time believing people in and of themselves are going to start taking this thing off. However, we do have Mar- uh, the summer coming, so July and August get pretty pretty steamy here. So that we might see a, we might see them drop off in in summer. I w- I would take a bet on that. Uh, they they you you see a, a good a good percentage of the people drop them in August. But outside of that, while it's still relatively cold here, no, they're staying on. Mike, thoughts? Yeah, I tend to agree with that. I mean, I wasn't, I didn't spend much time in Japan before the COVID hysteria began. So uh, I know that people were wearing masks here, not not only here, but in other parts of East Asia. Just in, like, they were just doing that as a normal precaution, like before anyone cared about any of this stuff. But I don't think it was that significant a portion of no. the population. I, I don't even think it was a majority, right? No, no. It was I mean, when people had a cold, they would put on a mask as a courtesy so that when they were sneezing on the train or whatever, it wouldn't cover everybody, which was great. Actually, it was quite nice, right? Um, but um, that was maybe, you know, there would be maybe two, three, four, five. I don't know. I can't, it, was, it was barely noticeable on the train, right? But there would be one or two people. But but so but the thing is, I mean, the, the key here is that it's been left at people's discretion. And so, you know, it's like, do you really want to be the one um, Japanese person who's there without the mask on? No. And so you and, and so people keep the mask on as a sort of precaution. And I, and I don't think I mean, to, to your point, Andy, I mean, there are some people who love the mask. I'm sure there's there's a, a minority of, you know, lazy salary man who don't clean their teeth or whatever, who, who, who you know, to whom it's convenient. But I think, um, you know, a lot of people don't don't enjoy the masks, um, but they feel the social pressure. And so they're going to keep the masks on anyway, which is unfortunate. I, I like your thought about August. I actually thought the same last year myself. I thought there's no way these guys are going to get through somehow with the masks on i couldn't believe i couldn't believe i couldn't believe the government didn't take the opportunity to start reporting on like heat deaths and things like that and say look it's actually it's actually now your social obligation to remove these things um maybe they'll try that this year i'll actually if anyone's interested though i actually think the masks are going to stay on in perpetuity i don't think they're going to take the masks off in summer um, I think for the rest of time now, um, Japan is just going to be a, a mask-wearing country. Um, but if, if anyone's interested in a 100,000 sat bet, um, I, will, I will take it for this year. I will say that um, by, by the end of the summer, we're still going to see 90% plus masks wearing outside. Anyone want to take on that bet? 
I don't want to take on that bet. I think unfortunately <laughs> yeah. we're also we're also pessimistic on the Japanese being able to take off these damn masks that I don't think any of us are going to take it off. Well, what I, did, yes, did, does the law say oh, anything about? Oh, sorry. Yeah, did the law say anything about, or the did Kishida's comments say anything about um, whether or not a uh, an individual uh, store doctor whatever will be uh, will be allowed to require that of you anymore? Yeah, so that again, this is all. It's like it's kind of language games. Now I've noticed a few places. Like there's the place that does the um, kabuki, I believe it was. You know, I got Lord knows, I, I I never go to these kind of places, but it's I, I guess they, they they serve an older demographic, right? And uh, they announced that they were going to continue to strongly encourage mask wearing, right? So so they they have to be careful with the language because there's no legal requirement for people to wear masks even now, of course, and there's no um I, I i my understanding is not a lawyer, do your own research, but the commercial uh, entities cannot f- force people to wear the mask legally um but um but well, yeah we're definitely going to see that we're going to see kind of i guess the japanese equivalent of virtue signaling and i'm guessing it's going to be ones that serve an older demographic right so these kind of old crusty theaters what have you places in ginza probably um whatever maybe department like mitsukoshi department store the average age of what 87 people who shop there um will probably see this kind of divergence where they they carry on you know, virtue signaling and kind of strongly encouraging mask wearing in the property. Now, whether, you know, they'll actually be going around and bothering people who don't wear masks or not, I'm not sure whether it'll just be signs that are put up everywhere. But yeah, we'll we'll definitely see that kind of, um, I think, divergence going forward. Yeah, that's really unfortunate. Um, I don't think I've ever seen a, a store employee in Japan not wearing a mask. When you're on the train or something, you might see like a couple people not wearing a mask, but, uh, and may- maybe I've started to see like a few more per day, like if I'm on the train, uh, who, who aren't wearing a mask, but yes, for the most part, it's like, it's, it's actually well above 90%. It's, it's like 90, 99, maybe, but I would love to walk into a store and then see none of the employees wearing a mask. That would be great. We what can dream. Mike? Can what dream. McDonald's used to say the smile is free. We're, we're... <laughs> They took that from us, right? Um, but yeah, that's that's the uh, that's the Japan segment for this week, gentlemen. So yeah, hopefully there'll be some more uh, big news items that we can report on next time. Well, thank you, brother. Interesting as always, what's going on here where we live. And to launch us into the builders segment for this week, uh, most people listening probably have heard of this, but if not, I uh, because of a conversation I had recently with uh, Meta Mike. I thought a good one to bring up would be Nunchuck, nunchuck.io. They, their global mission is the journey to financial freedom and sovereignty starts with the ability to self, self-custody your own Bitcoin. Our mission is to make safe Bitcoin custody accessible to millions of people around the world through the use of multisig technology and other companies um, by going through their site and reading some of their literature says they stand on four pillar pillars first it must be secure security starts by knowing our limits uh, defer specialists in the most security sensitive areas and that means delegating the la- the task of uh, managing private keys to single purpose hardware that means sticking close to bitcoin core for consensus code ruthlessly cutting down on the number of software dependencies. They can't completely eliminate all attack services, 
but can minimize them. Secondly, of their pillars, it must be seamless going from a single uh, single key to multiple keys necessarily requires some level of friction. The goal is to avoid further friction in every other part of the multisig process. Nunchuck achieves this by adopting best practices and open standards and by integrating with user-friendly technology such as NFC. Thirdly, uh, it must be future-proof. The Bitcoin protocol and infrastructure are still in their infancies. By refusing protocol code directly in the code base and by being at the forefront of multi-sig UX revolution, they make themselves adaptable to upcoming changes. And fourthly of their pillars, it must go above and beyond. Nunchuck offers the granular control over their wallet, offering features like emergency lockdown, scheduled payments, coin control, replaced by fee, etc. So ultimately, Nunchuck aims to provide uh, cutting edge security and user-centric design. Um, they have a multi-signature Bitcoin wallet, which is downloadable on any uh, app store, as far as I know. It's the safest way to own Bitcoin. Traditional multi-sig wallets on the market are difficult to use, and they're often inaccessible uh, to most people, accessible only to those most tech-savvy Bitcoin users. But the complexity of these traditional multi-sig wallet breeds another problem, how to pass on your Bitcoin to your loved ones. The more secure a wallet, the harder it will be for your family to access after you're gone. So Nunchuck was created to solve these problems and to bring down the barrier of entry to multi-sig and to create an easy way for Bitcoiners to pass on their wealth through single-sig, multi-sig, assisted multi-sig, inheritance planning, and in-app chat support. The Nunchuck team is globally distributed, unified by a common desire to create the best Bitcoin custody solution possible by Bitcoiners for Bitcoiners. You can find them at nunchuck.io and on Twitter at nunchuck underscore I-O. Have either, uh, either of you guys used Nunchuck? I have, uh, I've played with it a little bit. I, I, I don't use it for a multi-sig yet, but I think I will probably be doing so. I know they have a big, uh, big partnership with um, CoinKite through their NFC and whatnot. And uh, NVK is always talking about them. But do you guys use Nunchuck? I I have not used it personally. Like I um, have, um, you know, I don't, I don't want to completely dox my setup, but I I, I have used multisig um, with other tools previously. So I, I it kind of came after I I had that need. Um, but it looks like it's going to make multisig a lot more accessible. And I think, yeah, that's that thing with NVK's, um, is it called, what, what is it called? Is Tap Signer, right? Um, I think the, that combination is just going to make the whole thing so much like more simple, accessible, affordable to a whole lot more people. And I think, yeah, multisig for me, and I know it's, it, you know, there are some, um, it's, I guess it's not clear cut, or there are some people that think multisig is something maybe a bit advanced or that people should just really use passphrases um but i think yeah multi-sig is is the most secure way to hold your stash if you do it properly um and this kind of setup where it makes it easy and accessible means i think it's, it's kind of pu- helping to push um it towards where even for the average pleb like just using multi-sig is, is just a kind of a no-brainer now and it's um it's great it's great to see yeah, I haven't used Nunchuck yet. I mean, I'm always open to testing other new tools, especially when it comes to multi-sig. I mean, some of the multi-sig tools I've used in the past are, frankly, like pretty scary to use. And um, uh, like you have to test it, wipe, like wipe the wallet, clean the wallet, re- uh, 
reload the wallet like a, a number of times before you get comfortable with because it just seems like it's so easy to screw it up it's much i i think you're right that it's um it, it does offer the the highest level of security but it also makes it way easier to lock yourself out of your, your own funds um so any tools that simplify that process and make it more dummy proof um i i, I think there's a, a lot of demand for that and a lot of need for that in bitcoin the biggest foot gun it with multisig, by the way, and uh, <laughs> like I didn't know this even when I when I first set up multisig. So I, you know, it, it, and a lot of a lot of people have lost funds this way. But you, you, you for example, if you set up a two of three, um, you need to, two signatures out of the quorum of three in order to move funds. Everyone knows that that's easy. But a, what a lot of people don't know is that when you build that script, you need the public key of all three of the. Um, you know the, the 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 from the xpubs and so if you lose one key and you don't have a um, backup of the xpub even if it's two of three you your funds can be locked and you know um and the great thing about something like nunchuck is you know it it it, it makes it so much easier for you to kind of um back up the uh, you know, to have access to those public keys. So you, you're not shooting yourself in the foot like that. Um, and so I, I, I think as long as we, you know, we have solutions like this, which are just assisting the user really doing best practice and, 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 and preventing them from shooting themselves in the foot, then, yeah, it becomes a lot more easy to recommend multi-sig even to noobs. And um, it's, just, it's just great news for Bitcoin. I actually think multi-sig is... For me, it, I mean, it's just one of the most underappreciated but killer features of Bitcoin. This idea that you can have a distributed distributed keys, even distributed across uh, geographies, such that your Bitcoin sort of exists and doesn't exist at the same time, sort of all, spread all over the world. I mean, this is just so we've never had that in history, right? Um, where you can do that, you certainly can't do that with gold or something like that. And so, to me, in terms of, uh, especially when you consider Bitcoin as a store of value proposition uh, and a sensor and Caesar resistant property, um, you know, this is an absolute killer feature. And so, you know, especially as you as your stash grows, and you know, perhaps as we as we have another bull market in the future, you know, even if you have a small amount today, it could, of course, grow to a much larger amount in terms of purchasing power in the future, you know, having something like multi multi sig to protect that is, um, you know, it's, 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 it's really good. So yeah, great to see great to see um, uh, what Nunchuk are doing here. Yeah, that is the, the, I mean, even the single SIG, just the 12 word seed phrase itself is a huge advantage over gold. I mean, the fact, first of all, the fact that you could just destroy it in, in some kind of emergency situation, rather than have it be stolen, you could just destroy it forever, even if it was a single SIG. That itself is way better than gold, I think, and makes it much more difficult. Like the game theory is much, it, play, it works much more in the favor of the, the person who's defending rather than uh trying to steal um but once you get into passphrase wallets and multi-sig and you can distribute geographically the way the funds are stored now it's like there's no even comparison to gold like technically you could compare how like a let's say like 100 kilograms of gold or something is like this really big heavy thing that's hard to defend and like one slip of paper with 12 words on it is much easier, but nevertheless, there's still like something that's in one specific physical location that could be compromised. But once you can distribute that, once you can distribute that risk over different places, it's, it's just a feature that gold doesn't even have at all. It's, it's not even like, it's just a better improvement over gold. It's, it's a completely new thing. 
And that's why gold's a shit coin, by the way. <laughs> One of Amen, Mike. Amen. Yeah, I'm not going to disagree on that point. Yeah, I mean, hey, freaks, plebs, have a little bit of gold in your portfolio. But, I mean, the majority should definitely be Bitcoin. Bitcoin is, a, you know, it's a 10x, right? 100x. What is it on gold? I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's hugely, it's superior in so many ways. And this is definitely one of them. What just, uh, this is a, kind of a side question. Is there a reason um, that shitcoins don't do uh, multi-sig for the most part, or you don't really hear it talked about amongst the shitcoin people? Like, if they even have a hardware wallet, I've, I've never heard um, them do a multi-sig. I mean, I guess Jameson Lop with ETH but I, uh, recently, but I, I've never heard that being used in the wild. Is, that, is there a technical limitation on what uh something like ETH or I would, Cardano or I whatever would it does? I would guess that there's no technical limitation. It's just the majority, probably the majority of liquidity that's holding shit coins is just doesn't even care to hold their own keys. Aside from just me, on I would exchange. guess that yeah, I would guess that exchanges do multi sig for their shit coins though. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, but uh yeah, I like um I like Nunchuck. They I've like I said I played around I haven't I haven't set it up yet, but they've got a great um, they get a great UX, uh, great UI. The, the, the tap signer is cool. Um, I really like, um, what's it, who is it, uh, their main guy on, uh, on Twitter there that, that always puts out pretty banger thre- threads, uh, when he, um, when he, when he wrote something, uh, something, something when I forget his name. Um, but yeah, great team, uh, really like the, the product and hopefully, uh, as they and, and CoinKite roll out more stuff, um, they'll be able to, uh, uh, offer offer more uh, user friendly stuff for for morons like me that we can use to protect our stash. But that's enough for nunchuck for the day and multi sig. Moving on to Meta Mike, what are we talking about? So this will be the last one where we talk about politics and Bitcoin for a little while. Um, last week we were talking a little bit about the HRF and we were talking about some of these like globalist NGOs that. Um, are, are basically just like tools of the, the globalist American empire. Um, and uh, later on, I, uh, I do want us to get into like a more detailed and research discussion on like, the concept of color revolutions. Uh, maybe the last, just the last thing, because something came up this past week um, uh, is the, on this subject is El Salvador and Bukele. I mean, he's been big in the news, even like even outside of Bitcoin circles, Everyone's talking about Bukele now um, and El Salvador and what, what Bukele has been doing to crack down on uh, crime in, in the country. And, um, and uh, maybe we can, we can talk a little bit about that. And then, um, yeah, let's just start with that. Did you guys see any of that? Did you follow? The, uh, yeah, the, uh, what was that? The, uh, where he had that video where he had him running through, uh, running through uh, half naked and then like lined up like human centipede. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, he, he basically El Salvador had a huge crime problem and uh, like these gangs were controlling the streets. It was, I, I believe it was one of the highest homicide rates in the world. If, if not, maybe even the highest. Um, it was the MS 13 hub, right? Yeah. MS 13. I don't, I, I believe there are other gangs too, but the, the MS 13, I think is the, the, the big one. Um, but he basically just cracked down and like rounded everybody up, everyone with gang tattoos, throw them in jail. Um, of, and so, um, 
there there are a couple interesting things. I mean, one is you saw some from from some of these like liberal um, human rights NGOs, you start to see some of this commentary like, uh, oh, he's violating human rights. He's not. He's uh, uh, he's establishing martial law. He's not uh, giving these people due process. Um, but then you you also saw a lot of the responses from that are like else the Salvadoran people were they have a really high approval rating of Bukele and they, they really like what's happening. I mean, like their lives have drastically improved since uh, and, and like, like the chaos has been subdued in, in their neighborhoods and in their city um, since Bukele started this. So this is actually seeming to be something that is putting Bukele on the radar um, even more than the, the Bitcoin move. Right. Like I think before before that Bitcoin conference, when he announced the legal tender thing, like nobody really knew who he was outside of El Salvador, unless you're like really focused on uh, Central American geopolitics or something. But uh, yeah, that put him on the radar for a lot of Bitcoin and maybe some finance type people. But now it's like anyone who's paying attention to uh, geopolitics is knows knows him now. Are they paying attention to that now, though, because of the Bitcoin thing, do you think, in that they started to, like, he caught everyone's attention by that announcement, and obviously in quite a negative way when it comes to the IMF and these types, and that they have then sort of scoured through the news to find whatever they can that's negative about him, and this is something they're trying to pick up and kind of beat him with? Do you, do you think that could be uh, an explanation of why they're in the news? Yes. Yeah, I mean that's that's a possibility, and I mean they're like ever since he kind of pitted himself against the like international banking order, uh, he he has become a big target, and they're going to look for anything that they can do, and that's why they're going to set up like these cover color revolution style like protests and try to uh, spread like subversive, um, ag- agitative movements in El Salvador to try to get him deposed. I mean that's that's basically the color revolution model. But um, um, I think this is something that they, even if the Bitcoin stuff wasn't there, this is something that they, they don't like to see. Um, the idea that like uh, one like one guy can just come in and just like enact these policies that completely clean up the streets and reduce crime. And like imagine if something like this were to happen, like he's showing that something like this is possible, right? So uh like there are huge crime problems all in all kinds of places even in american cities there's serious problems where the streets could be cleaned up and it's like he's showing that like all it takes is just do what i'm do what i'm doing so i, I think that that's one of the reasons he's become you, a target do you remember that um no sorry like this this might be off topic go ahead i think dash was going to say something on that point i that fascinates me because I think you might be right, but I, I can't understand why or what the motivation is on. And is this is this like a kind of Democrat thing or is it a nonpartisan thing? But it could be. And, and, and the reason being is because I remember the kind of New York thing. Was it Mayor Giuliani who came in and he kind of had that hard line on crime and he cleaned up the city? And I remember mm-hmm. that being a very. Well, how do you say like pe- people uh, evaluated that? positively right and, and and that's kind of remembered positively so why where where did a disconnect come where now it's seen as a negative thing to crack down on crime and and i, I so i just can, can you maybe try and explain what where the motivations are coming from or the incentives are coming from that to, to lead to this 
Yeah, well, I mean, Ju I, I believe that uh, a lot of people did really like and respect Giuliani for that reason. But I, th I think on the other side, he was uh, controversial for that. And he was demonized by by a lot of people as well. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I think what you can see is like the, the, the cities where crime is a huge problem, whether it's in the U.S. or or wherever. But I mean, especially in the U.S., it's these are like uh, leftist, Democrat controlled cities and uh, for I think all of them pretty much. Um, so w why is it that the, uh, the, they can't be cleaned up? I mean, it's clearly a, a result in some, in some way of the policies, right. That are being supported, that are being promoted. What, what I don't understand is what, where is the incentives on the left? And I'm a cynical person. So I tend to say, follow the money. Is it, is it something to do with, that the for example the prison industrial complex tends to be more active in lobbying the republican or the right or what 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 why is it that the left isn't doesn't have the incentives to to crack down on crime and, and clean up the streets that, that's what i'm trying to understand yeah yeah that's a good that's a good question i think there's a lot of factors uh, that's probably something that like we could analyze for a really long time I, but um um i don't when it comes to uh gangs i'm not exactly or like what what people generally assume are gangs i mean i know that when it comes to uh like street mob violence in general that is definitely something that has been weaponized by the regime um like think of all those mass protests like antifa is a perfect example of this right like they're uh it has been pointed out that they're essentially like the the, the paramilitary troops that the regime weaponizes against the people and anytime they want to stir up problems uh to support some kind of political agenda they can just uh plant these groups in the street and like they'll be rioting and uh destroying stuff and your your small business will get wrecked and i mean that's that's what happened uh, in the summer of um, love 20 summer was of love. 2020 2021 yes. yeah 2020 uh, of love. yeah the summer of love yeah yeah and, and of course that was um instrumental in um, making Trump look bad and, and getting rid of him, which was one of the major goals of the regime, right? I mean, a lot of this also ties into what you want to talk, uh, uh, get into later or at, at a later date with the, the color revolution stuff and then like what the what the ultimate political agenda is for something like this, because you don't see crime um, being tolerated in uh, post-left attaining power societies, you know, something like a China, a... Soviet Russia, whatever. Yeah, I mean, like gray market, obviously crime and, and markets merge, but I mean, like they, they usually treat crime almost with capital capital punishment levels of uh, of discipline once power has been established. But it, it is a good uh, method by which they can scare a population and, and and assert themselves as a saving light, right? Yeah, and it's, it is a really like sophisticated, insidious um system that they have established it's like you could be like antifa rioting attacking people in the streets and then like you get arrested by the local police if you're one of the few who does get arrested if the police aren't even aren't told to just completely stand down and let you do it but then for the ones that are arrested all the district attorneys like in the area in these urban areas have been established instituted and put in put in place by these uh like deep funded you could say like globalist um organizations like soros funded da's who just like release them put them right back on the streets don't even charge them with crimes that that's one of the major problems 
and the way it works in the US. And these are the same, the same groups that are doing that are the same groups that are now demonizing pretty much the only groups in the world that are, that are demonizing and attacking Bukele for what he's doing. And then I remember Bukele is a, he's aware of this and he calls it, he calls it out straight up. Like he'll go and give a speech and talk about how like, oh, the only people who don't approve what we're doing here are these like fake human rights organizations in the West. Absolutely. Have you, did you remember, uh, I remember first seeing him go, go on this path after the bit, because as you said, I didn't know who the hell he was uh, or care who the, the president of El Salvador was, but after the Bitcoin thing, I, you know, obviously start paying more attention. And do you remember that speech he gave? It has to have been a year, maybe 16, 18 months ago when he was in front, uh, like he had recruited a bunch of uh, new, like cops, which are <laughs> slash parents, uh, slash military uh, units at this point. Um, and he gave that banger of a speech in front of their uh, their training facility, and he told them like all the prisoners will get fed, but they won't get any more chicken and stuff like that. It was it was hysterically funny, and uh, it was just really impactful. Do you remember seeing that at all? Um, I I think I might know the one that you're talking about. I think there's been a couple speeches like that. Is this the one? Oh, where there's it's been like a couple. Time and he's he's wearing the sweater. Yeah, it's just like a fan. Yeah, yeah. He's got the, he's, it's just like this really well produced video, and he 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 delivers it like a boss. Yeah, yeah, it was a great, great speech, great speech. And, it's and hard, he's talking about, think... he, one of the really interesting things from that speech, well, for one, the way he was dressed was actually, I think, a, a really good uh, move. Like, he's not wearing some some uniform <laughs> or some suit where they're going to, like, they're going to take a picture of him. <laughs> he looks like, like, like yeah. the next Hitler or something. But he's just, he's just looking casual, like business casual, wearing a nice sweater. And uh, anyway, uh but like, I'm pretty sure in his speech, he was talking about things like we're grounding our country in the right values. Like we, uh, we center our country around God and uh, like our Christian values. And like, we can see the decline of the West as a result of them turning away from those. And like he, yeah, it was a really good speech. And what, what, what really, what um, I was just connecting that to the actual statistics. Now I, I, you know, I, you know, statistics take them for what they're worth and I don't have any way to validate it, but aren't they on a string of like 300 days with no murder? Yeah, that, that, that's what I, from what I've seen is like, they went from one of the most dangerous, well, I guess the country as a whole, but especially San Salvador has gone uh, from one of the most dangerous places in the world to now one of the most safe, uh, one of the safest. Which is astounding. It's, uh, it's I mean, amazing like, how that can you works. imagine any American city of over fifty thousand people not having a murder for three hundred days? I, I, I can't even conceive of that. And and all it takes is a Bukele. I mean, so this this is what ties into. Um, we don't have to rehash that whole dialogue about political dialectics and monarchy versus whatever whatever it is, whatever you want to call it in America. I mean, I would call it some version of oligarchy, but um, um oligarchy masquerading as a democracy of course but he's showing how easy it is like like all it takes is this one guy and you can you can make bitcoin legal tender in your country like he has advisors sure he has a lot of people helping him out but he's the one just like in charge and making the decisions and the people have have submitted to his authority to be able to do those things and they've allowed him to do these things and so he gets it done and he's showing how easy it is to clean up the clean up a city that's ridden with crime and all these problems and like if you wanted to clean up Chicago, Atlanta, Philly, New York, whatever, like all these all these cities that have the same problems that San Salvador had, maybe not to the same extent, but still pretty bad. Like you imagine just being someone who's living in 
in some like in some dump in one of these cities and like all it would take is someone like him to come along and uh and clean it up and there are plenty of people willing to do it but like what are all of these forces making that impossible in america and then you start to see like wait a lot of what we're seeing as when you look at what's happening in el salvador like who are the people criticizing him and like what he's trying to do and uh in some cases these are even bitcoiners right? People, people pretending to be spreading Bitcoin for the sake of spreading human rights and liberal democracy around the world. And um, uh, it, it's, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a psyop. I mean, for lack of a better word, is, is the way it works. Do you understand that uh, their argument, like I've listened to Alex and I, I, I read um, comments by the libertarian uh, Bitcoin crew who who has a, who 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 comes out. Do you can you make head or tails of exactly what it is? The problem is I have a hard time really um, understanding the argument from that side. I, I I don't grasp what it is that they're trying to say is so so uh, off putting to them about this situation. Yeah, it's it's a complex thing. I mean, and I wouldn't try to like read into like secret motivations and stuff. Maybe that kind of thing can exist in many cases, um, but we don't have to do that. I mean, we we can just talk about what they say publicly and what they're actively pr saying that they want to accomplish. Um, it's like they don't have any capacity to. Um, well, okay, they they. I think what what's happening is that they build up this idea of like some kind of political economic vision is like the utopian vision it's a very like uh worldly system man-made system that they've it's like an intellectual system that they build up in their head just like any kind of uh political utopianism whether it's socialism communism whatever i, I would i would even argue the ancap libertarian stuff is the exact same in this respect mm. um yeah and um and essentially you like make that the center of your value system and like this is what the world needs this is how we save civilization this is how we build a better world this is how we bring about world peace all these kinds of like cult cultish like cult of civilization systems and so you you basically develop the equivalent of a religious worldview around this so now like your main thing has been like spreading liberal democracy and like human rights or your concept of what human rights are around the world and uh that's what needs to be done at all costs. And then like these narratives form around like, oh, like look at Vladimir Putin. He's like an oligarchic thug, former KGB. And like, there's no way to, once you've gotten yourself too deep into this, <clears throat> into this uh, ideology, there's no way for you to like take a step back and just be like, at the end of the day, like are, are the people ruling my society and controlling my society, like really bad and any better and doing a better job and offering me anything more promising or good than what Putin would. And like, like the, to even ask that question is like blasphemy in their view. And they're like, they, they can't even entertain it. So what you're saying is so, liberal, the liberal, liberal democracy writ large is a priori a good. It doesn't, it doesn't even need defense. It doesn't even need, it doesn't even matter how it's working. It doesn't even matter what it is. The, the whole structure of de-democracy is a necessary good and everything must flow from it regardless uh to how to, to how it's working on the ground 
Yeah, yeah, I, w- I would say so. And then that, and that's how they can create these scapegoats um, where, like, at the end of the day, I mean, like, what even is liberal democracy? Like, it, it can just yeah. kind of warp into whatever the power structures controlling them. And in many cases, if you work for, like, an NGO, you have funders who are basically your handlers. And whatever these power structures are, you know, like, whatever agenda they're trying to push, like, these terms and these words are just going to get manipulated into whatever ends they seek. And uh, so... Um, very, very quickly, you, you, like you'll start to see the contradictions, and um, like they love to, they love to harp on things like, oh, like in Russia, there's no freedom of speech. If you go up against the political regime, you'll get thrown in prison. Like, does that sound like a free country to you? No, we don't have that here because we're a liberal democracy. But then at the same time, you start to see the globalist American empire countries, including the U.S. itself, but of course, like Western Europe, they have all kinds of violations of free speech laws. And you're not allowed to go up against the, the regime's symbols and special cl- groups and special classes of people. And uh, uh, people get Australia too. I mean, we saw violations of freedom of speech when it came to um, COVID. I mean, you saw like, oh, you're not, they always talk about how no one's allowed to protest the regime in, uh, um, um, in Moscow. But then what happened on uh, January 6th with the uh, Fed surrection there? Um, I mean, you could argue, uh, let's, I, I know I don't want to get into too, too much into this, but there were certainly just completely peaceful protesters who happened to walk across some kind of imaginary line, didn't break anything, didn't, uh, cause any problems, uh, but they were thrown in jail. Right. And, uh, I think to this day, many still are. So, um, like that was a peaceful protest. And, and then, but then at the same time, you see the exact same thing when it's like these leftist protests, uh, um, pr- protesting various government buildings. Uh, they they're allowed to do it, right? And no, nobody gets arrested. So there are all these double standards, and uh, that you, that you start to notice once you pay attention to things. I wonder if the difference is degree of of kind of power or self confidence in the regime's own power, where the U.S you know, whatever the establishment or the ruling class are just so, so self-confident, they can let a lot slide because they know it's just not a genuine risk to their authority. Whereas in, in other countries, for example, you mentioned the likes of Russia, um, you know, maybe they have to constantly worry about kind of interference from the US, maybe from the CIA in, in kind of funding these opposition groups. And maybe that, that like Putin is a little bit more tenuous in his position than the US. And that's why we see more, more, you know clampdowns in in russia but in reality you know as you point out <laughs> i mean that there's very little material difference between the two in that in the states if you if you if you know you're, you're free to criticize more maybe but if you criticize the wrong thing you're going to be met with the same kind of um you know suppression is do, do, would you agree with that yeah that's why i would I, I would agree with um what various people have have acknowledged is like there is no such thing as free a, a society with truly free speech there is no, and there's no private community with truly free speech either. I mean, at the end of the day, at, at least spam is getting filtered out of any, any system, like even a tech system. <clears throat> um, but uh, like we have a private group chat, and uh, there's uh, there we don't we don't allow, tolerate free speech in our Tokyo Citadel Bitcoin group chat. If some guy came in and started promoting shit coins and trying to sell shit coins to everybody, we would kick him out of the group. There's no free speech in our group, and that's that's fine. That's a good thing as far as I'm concerned. And, and when it comes to the, and, and then you can draw the libertarian distinction, like, oh, there's a difference between the government and a private corporation or a private group. Um, 
sure but like there, there's also never a there's also never a, a nation state or a government or some kind of nation that that um can tolerate any level of like or just unlimited level of free speech either it's just a matter of like how much do you agree and how much do you pay attention and agree with like the um holy and sacred symbols of your society um that aren't allowed to be criticized and so it's like it's very easy when you're when you're not thinking about it at a deeper level for um for your own regime to point to some other regime and, and then point out like oh look people in that country aren't allowed to criticize x y and z like in our country you're free to do that without noticing that like it's it's the same um <clears throat> uh it's the same it's just that you're bought into your country's system to some degree and that's why you don't notice it and people in that country might be saying the same thing about you can i make one comment there about the holy and sacred symbols because one thing i noticed and i don't i don't know if you guys watched the uh, the super bowl the other week but uh, one thing i noticed is the amount of you know these sacred symbols seems to be increasing in the us it used to be you just stood up for the national anthem and there was maybe a flyover but now there is a um I think they call it the black national anthem um, before the main national anthem. Um, and then they had the flyover, but then they, 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 they emphasized that the flyover was like an all women crew. And like, they, it just seemed like they were ticking like seven or eight or nine boxes where it used to be just like one or maybe one or maybe two things. And I just wondered, are, are they, do you agree that the sake, the sacred symbols in the U S are kind of proliferating? And, and if so, is this like a desperate scramble for the um, establishment to maintain its kind of power over all the disparate groups within the U S and, and is, is it a sign maybe of its, of, of the U S's decline? Any, any comments there? Sorry. Can you, re can you repeat the first part of that? Uh, uh, from the, so in the, in the Super Bowl. um, uh, before the the kickoff, they had a number of you know they they usually they, they usually just have the national anthem right, sure. And that's one of what I always thought was like okay, one of the American sacred symbols. You know, everyone stands up and to to the national anthem. You have the flag, and it was it was quite simple previously. And I'm just going back maybe five years here. Maybe maybe it was before the Kaepernick thing, but now it like they had several things at the Super Bowl. You know. The, prior to the kickoff they had the black national anthem uh the the regular national anthem they had a flyover right which they had before but then they emphasized that the flyover was an all-women crew so it was like also something like this this kind of um fe feminist aspect was also being held up as a, as a as a sacred symbol and i just wondered and, and then did you get the bit about the prol proliferation and whether that connected to general american decline or do you, do you need me to reiterate that too Mm. Well, yeah, this, uh, those are some symbols. I mean, at, at this point, like the national anthem and the American flag, I wouldn't even <laughs> regard as uh, um, the sacred symbols of America. I mean, like leftists have been burning the American, certain, certain privileged groups of leftists have been, as far as I understand, like burning the American flag uh, with, um, and they get uh, uh, celebrated by the regime, right? Kneeling for the national anthem, you get celebrated by the regime. Uh, so like that was one of the jokes, right? One of the jokes, uh, during 20, was it 2021 during the summer of love, as Andy said, was like, how do you know someone is a Biden supporter? It's, they have a, a black lives matter flag on their lawn. How do you know someone's a Trump supporter? They have the American flag hanging on their, uh, on their, on their door. So, uh, and of course, like being a Trump supporter makes you, 
um, they're they're the underclass, obviously, in America. Like to, to publicly be a, a Trump supporter in American, what's now American high society is like, a, it's like a low status thing um, to say. Uh, or at least, I mean, Trump's not even as big of a deal nowadays, but this would have been like two years ago. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, like the sacred symbols and which are like the evil symbols and the sacred symbols, I think uh, political symbols are more apparent in some of the other countries. Like Bukele was talking about how um, the other countries in the globalist American empire, like Bukele was talking about how what he was doing where he was removing all these gang symbols everywhere is nothing but the same thing that Germany did post-World War II or the, that was uh, forced onto Germany post-World War II where all the swastikas were cleaned up and it was illegal. And I think still to this day, it's illegal to um, like uh, wave a Nazi flag or something like celebrate the, the Nazi regime or something. Um, so that's clearly like an, an illegal symbol. So like that's a quote from a libertarian perspective, that's a violation of freedom of speech. So like uh, how are people criticizing what Bukele does when they, they support it, when Germany does the same follows the same principle. And that, that was, that's what Bukele uh, was um, clever to point out. But you also see, I mean, um, like you're not allowed to violate various, uh, that's an example of where they're crushing a symbol that goes against, they're crushing like blasphemous symbols in that, in that scenario. But um, um, there are like, I think you're not allowed to, uh, say in England and Germany and I think other countries and the uh, in in Europe, like you're not allowed to say certain comments that are like quote hateful, hate crimes or um, hate speech. So, I mean that's technically a violation of libertarians' concepts of freedom of speech. Uh, and where is um, where is Alex Gladstein, who's uh, or just not not just him specifically, but any of these like human rights groups? they're they're not saying anything about that but they'll say but they'll make a big deal about it if if russia says that you can't say a certain thing in russia against the the regime or what the regime tells you to, that you should be valuing so i'm only trying to i'm not trying to just to support certain symbols over others in this debate i think like a lot of it is just like we we're only at this point because we're like as a society we're just like so dumbed down uh, that we're like having these battles and uh, like we're enslaved to these various systems. Um, so I'm not trying to take a side one way or the other on like which symbols are good and which ones aren't. But I'm just saying like it's you can notice a clear double standard. Uh, and I think in many cases it's sincere and like they don't even really pay close attention to it. They just uh, they just have this narrative in, in their minds where like we are the good guys and like liberal democracy is is the is is the, the right system. It's like the, the system that will save us and save the world and build a better, build a better world. And, uh, and all these other guys in these evil places like Iran and China and North Korea and um, Russia, and wherever else are, are the bad guys. And um, you don't really see beyond that. Mike, I guess uh, a question that uh, kind of arises from that is, is how, what enables uh, somebody like a Bukele to make that kind of stance. Do you think it was the Bitcoin move that put him in that position, the Bitcoiners that supported him? 
do you think Bitcoin was actually just kind of a, a, a derivative of something else um, that was moving in that direction anyway? How, how do you frame that just out of curiosity? Yeah, that's a really good question. And to be honest, I don't, I don't exactly know the answer. And this is something that came up in one of our previous discussions where it's like, the the way I think about it is monarchy is the 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 uh, it's the manifestation of like a healthy society basically a healthy social order but at the same time you can't just like take some kind of dysfunctional society and put in place a new one king or person to rule it and control it um and there are many dysfunctional ways where people would make that attempt and it typically like uh it's like they they set up some kind of strong a strong man to, to clean everything up and maybe he does clean up some problems but he can also introduce all kinds of new ones um and so i i would say that uh every like every level of the society needs to come together harmoniously in order for something like that to be possible it's not like it's not just something that can be necessarily like, technically imposed top down maybe, maybe in some cases it can if uh if there's enough external backing um for the the guy at the top but then but then you have more problems that get pushed out to what's what's going on in that external system that's backing him so um yeah i mean i think i think when you have something like what's going on at El, in El Salvador right now. And I don't know if the situation in El Salvador could change like in a few years, like something could, there could be some kind of deterioration there. So I don't want to tie myself to saying like El Salvador's is, is, is going to work out, but like clearly what's happened, what's been happening for the last two years has been, has, has been good. Um, um, but uh, yeah. So like if you have a system that's looking like the way El Salvador looks today, I think that's a sign that there is a healthy social order, but you can't just like come up with an org chart, a political org chart and t take that structure and then try to like fit it into your own society and think that that's going to solve the problem. That's like a cargo cult solution. It's not going to work. So a lot of things need to come together. And ultimately I think we, like we talk about that. It's like the only thing you can do like, as soon as you start to get into these, these ideas of um, like what, what can we do to like fix our society and like like what kind of organizational changes do we need to make which kind of policies do we need to to um to enforce everywhere um and save the world like you you immediately just fall into the same trap that we're that or i'm i'm right now criticizing the the globalist people trying to spread liberal democracy everywhere and so-called human rights everywhere you're just going to end up doing the, doing the same thing that they're doing and it's, it's doomed to fail. I mean, ultimately the only thing that you can do is, uh, uh, make sure you like change yourself so that you're not the one contributing to the problem. If, and if the problem's happening around you, that's, that's out of your control. I mean, the best you can do is, is, uh, fix yourself and your relations with, with the people in your immediate circle. I, I agree with that. I, I wonder, like you said, Mike, you know, you're not tying yourself to El Salvador's success going forward, and that, you know, that completely makes sense. It's, um, you know, I've I've heard mixed things, right? Um, you know, I've I've heard from a couple of people who went over there and 
um, we're even considering maybe moving there, but they, you know, they're only over there a few weeks and, and they kind of made the decision that it wasn't a place that they could live. Um, and apparently it's quite, you know, it's, it's, you go there and it's, I haven't been, but it, it's, it's very much a developing country. Um, but it's definitely something that's kind of on, on my radar and I'm, I'm, I'm very support, I'm su- uh, you know, I'm I'm supporting Bukele and his mission because I actually think potentially El Salvador could be one of the kind of three flags going forward for me personally. It's like okay, if 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 the situation's pretty stable in Japan right now, but if there was an energy crisis or something like that, or you know, if if the situation in Japan were to materially get worse. You know, El Salvador could be somewhere I could look potentially to 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 relocate to. It could be like a a, a haven. Um, do you guys have any thoughts about that? Like with regards to El Salvador and um, yeah, any any sort of thoughts uh, thoughts or ideas you've had in, in in terms of maybe moving there one day? Actually, Dash, I'm kind of curious as we um, but, but that's a great question. But before we get there, like as you're looking at it, because you represent more of the the, the kind of libertarian end between mike and i who i don't think you have to be a genius to figure out where we fall uh on on a lot of this um how do you see bukele and and the human rights stuff like and and all you know kind of what we're talking about here today what are your how do you kind of yeah yeah my so my natural inclination is to mistrust the government you mentioned the murder statistic i think there hasn't been a murder for x amount of time i think that was you mike and my initial thought hearing that was well yeah of course because that the government's measuring and they want to say that there's zero murders and how do we actually know there's zero murders probably they're just not reporting on them so yeah i have that natural uh mistrust of of bikali and, and the government in general on the other hand you know a big part of my thinking going forward for myself and my family is you 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 have to live under a regime you have to choose you kind of have to pick your poison and so i think the best you can do or, or uh, you know the best i'm thinking i can do for myself is to play the regimes or the jurisdictions off against each other and so i look at actually what bikaley's doing and, and you, you look at those photos of the guys who he had lined up for example it was mentioned earlier on the podcast and i'm not sure if i want any of those guys living next door to me right i mean they all had full body full face tattoos i'm I'm not sure how many of these are kind of middle class doctors and nurses and teachers (laughs) who've been caught up in the net right i so i think in in this particular case it seems to me but you know even even based on the doc um the the journalist the articles that i've read which are apparently negative about this you know just looking at the photos and just looking at what he's doing it seems to be doing something that needs to be done and if i was to consider to move to el salvador in the future it's like I, I'd want those kind of people. I mean, I'm sorry to judge on just based on appearances, but they all look, you know, very, very scary, very sort of criminal sort of people. You know, you, you know, I wouldn't move to El Salvador if it was dominated by these gangs, right? And so, so I think, yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm skeptical, but at the same time, um, it, it looks like he's doing what needs to be done. And, um, and yeah, and that, so that would be my take. And then I'm, I'm quite optimistic about El Salvador, and I'm hoping if he can continue that, if he can clean the streets, and then the Bitcoin thing kind of helps with the economy, um, and, and El Salvador sees some growth there and sees some like positive momentum. Wow, you know, I mean, that, that, could, be, um, that could be a real option for me going forward in terms of you know, potentially being able to relocate there. In four, in four quick weeks, Mike, you've taken uh, Dash from libertarian to to absolute monarchist good job <laughs> supporting a dictator dash is now a dictator <laughs> i wouldn't go that far but li- listen yeah like i say you got to you got to pick your poison and i think just based on now what i've seen 
it seems like he's doing the right thing. Now, I would have concerns, for example, for Bekele Jr., or whoever the hell took over from him in the future. I mean, however good that the, you know, uh, you know, Bekele, I, and yeah, I've heard him in interviews. He's an incredibly impressive guy. He speaks probably better English than, than I do. And it's a second language. And, um, you know, he's just, he's clearly, you know, a, a incredibly well-spoken, well-educated, thoughtful, um, knows exactly what's going on and, 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 and a hell of an impressive figure, but okay. What happens in 15, 20 years time or whenever, when Bukele gets old or there's a successor or at some point it will get corrupted. Right. But, but I think just, just in, in, in the next kind of in the short to medium term, you know, El Salvador for me looks like under his, under his, um, firm hand is on the up and up. Mm-hmm. Cool. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, I mean, sure. we'll see. But he's gonna—he is going to be attacked. So I mean, they would love to do the Cutler Revolution to him. They would love to uh, um, Gaddafi him, or uh, like Saddam Hussein him, or at least tr- like pull a tr- uh, do what they did to Trump to him if they can. So um, I, you know, we'll I see how that plays out. I've thought of that too, and I was like, "Why the hell don't they take him out?" And then, and then, I don't know if you guys read the uh, Arthur Hayes did a uh, uh, launched a new blog post last night on Medium. I'm not sure if you had a chance to read it yet, but it's actually quite interesting. And um, you know, you're you're deep into a bear market when the shitcoiners start talking just about Bitcoin again. They will become Bitcoin maxis again. And <laughs> and Arthur is uh, his last like two or three articles have all been about Bitcoin and, and sort of geopolitics, but. The one last night was interesting because he was talking about potential situations whereby um, if there was a a crisis with um, global oil supplies, specifically around uh, in the Iran area, and I think it's called the – do you guys know the the, the pass there that that sits on the Iranian border? Um, I think it's – it's it's something like 20 30 percent of the global oil passes through that particular pass um it's like an it's like a choke famous choke point um globally for where potentially a lot of the especially middle eastern oil supply could be shut off but arthur was game theorying some you know if if in the scenario that that um was was shut off um you know how, how would that play out in terms of uh, impact on you know globally on the world etc um and 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 i just got thinking about that oh my god yeah 90 percent of the japanese oil comes from the middle east and if that if that actually were to happen um like it would it would have huge consequences on on this country and i'm thinking is you know if you know arthur's thinking this way i'm sure that the american um the Glo- globus american empire is also sort of preoccupied with this this game theory around oil which seems just far more critical and and, and important and so maybe bekele's kind of managed to sneak under the radar a little bit because of that and going forward as well because el salvador doesn't have oil and so you know maybe maybe thanks to that he's going to be able you know that that's one, one explanation of why he's been allowed to continue to do what he's doing uh any any thoughts on that well, this ties into the kind of how I wanted to wrap up this um, series on politics and Bitcoin is like I wanted to talk about the uh, how this how the geopolitical situation and we could talk about the, the dominant forces, whether it's the globalist American empire, um, Russia and China. I, I would say that those are probably the dominant. Most people recognize those as the dominant uh, geopolitical forces in the world now. How um, how Bitcoin fits in to the power struggles that are taking place uh, amongst those countries and uh, or, or those empires, we should call them. And then um, um, how that impacts Bitcoin and Bitcoiners and also specifically how that impacts Japan and Bitcoin use in Japan. And uh, the oil and energy is, is, is definitely like, going to be a big factor for that. 
yeah, I've I've come to the conclusion that oil is everything for the, for these people, especially. Um, I think, you know, I think Ukraine war has something to do with that. I think we've seen the central banks of Russia and China, um, you know, increasing their their gold supplies. We've seen speeches that Putin's made where he's been very ex, uh, explicit about calling out the U.S. for its exorbitant privilege and essentially exporting inflation all around the world. We've seen the Chinese send delegations to the Saudis and to talk with them about um, pricing oil in, in currencies other than the dollar, specifically the, the yuan. Um, and, you know, but, and so I, you know, I think this is all playing out essentially that the U S has the entire world almost in, in slavery, having to earn dollars in, in, in order to pay for their energy, um, which every country needs. And you can only buy in dollars right now. And it seems to me that's the absolute critical piece of the globalist American empire, which if it crumbles, the whole thing comes down. Um, and so I just think the Americans are going to do anything in their power to prevent countries who are energy producers from pricing their and uh, their oil in anything other than dollars. Um, I think we talked upon this podcast previously about, yeah, I might just mention now Gaddafi, for example, who I believe made noises about a, a, an African currency um, or even selling uh, oil and gold before he was, you know, he, he had freedom delivered to him. Um, I think Saddam right. Hussein also had similar um, noises he made about pricing oil in, in euros, right? And so I, I, for me, it's the absolute critical key of the globalist American empire. And, uh, and, that, and, and that's where we're going to see geopolitics really play around that going forward. Um, would, would you agree with that? Yeah. And I, I had, uh, I had a comment I wanted to make, but I completely forgot my train of thought. <laughs> Andy, do you have anything? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's one of those hard ones. I mean, it's, it, it's almost kind of, um, too obvious to mention, right? Like the, the Americans and the dollar uh, using that, weaponizing it, sanctions, which they've been using at increasing, uh, at increasing levels over the past, what, 30, 40 years. How that go uh, continue going forward, right? Like it's one of those things that you can use and that, that you know you have um, in your back pocket that you can always throw down, but the more you throw it down, like you end up getting a brick situation. Um, and and you know that that's always a concern. However, I mean, on the flip side of that, with with the dollar, no, there there isn't a um, an alternative really at this point. Like, who the hell wants the ruble? Or if they do make a BRICS thing, maybe they'll they'll play with it amongst themselves. But nobody's going to hold it, right? Like, you can't you you can't if you're on on a nation state level, you're not going to be able to hold the thing. And we're all waiting for Bitcoin, but it, it obviously doesn't have the liquidity yet. It's not a big enough thing so that anybody could could take it on that level. I actually don't know how, you know, the, the mechanism by which Bitcoin moves from, you know, self-sovereign pleb money to something on the geo the geopolitical level. I don't know how it makes that transition does does you know sweden have to adopt it does switzerland have to put it on put it on the on the central bank balance sheet does does it is is it something by which you know these um you know because what's it um shell or something speaking at at bitcoin 2023 and there's all those the texas bitcoiner uh things that have the energy company guys that that attend is it, is it through energy it's is it through the energy companies themselves uh, adopting bitcoin that 
that it it makes it's able to make a transition. I, I actually don't know how that works because as it stands now, nobody wants friggin' Yuan. You know, no one's gonna trade, you know, you know, to pesos for you know South Korean won at this point. There has to be an intermediary. And I don't know how the US dollar gets supplanted without you know, like a third world war Bretton Woods thing that makes SDR is the new international currency or something. Do you have an opinion? Yeah, on the on the BRICS thing, like, I mean, I think as far as BRICS goes, like Brazil and South Africa are just totally like non uh, uninteresting at this point. I mean, like what they got, they, they got rid of Bolsonaro and now uh, this new guy that they set up, it does seem like he's um, he's not interested at all in the interest in the in the interests of brazil itself so brazil like brazil is not going to do anything interesting for its own um uh for its own benefit uh and to serve its own people at this point the regime i mean and uh south africa is from what i can see is just like going to shit really fast um but russia india and china are interesting i mean uh um like russia has proven that it is willing to stand up to the to the globalist american empire to the and and and, and uh, the relevance to this would be like it it will be willing to stand up against dollar hegemony, right? And China, of course, seems like it's willing to do the same. Um, on the ge- as far as like geopolitical adoption of uh, Bitcoin, like switching from pleb money to um, sovereign nation money, uh, like El Salvador. The, it, it did seem like what Bukele did was what makes perfect sense is if you're someone who's getting screwed over by the, the international um, or the, the world dollar is the world reserve currency uh, and you can benefit from adopting the Bitcoin standard, then it makes perfect sense that you would. When it comes to China, I think China probably w- wants to get rid of dollar hegemony, but it, all, it probably wants its own currency to become the new world reserve currency. So that would, it would make sense for why China doesn't want to adopt the Bitcoin standard. It doesn't want a global Bitcoin standard. Um, what never made sense to me is like, it, it seemed like Russia, like starting a couple of years ago, it was in the perfect, and, and even now it's, it's in like the perfect position to where like a, a global Bitcoin standard would probably help it a lot. And uh, like, because from its perspective, it wants to get rid of the dollar as the world reserve currency. And it wouldn't want China to become the world reserve currency. Why not have something more neutral? like Bitcoin. Um, so it always like confused me, like why, why wouldn't they push for, for Bitcoin adoption? Why wouldn't they want to be adopting Bitcoin? Like either do they, do they just not understand it or are they receiving pressure from China or something telling them not to? Yeah. Because I'm, it does I'm sure like a lot, them and a lot of their partners would benefit a, them and a lot of their trading partners would benefit greatly from adopting a Bitcoin standard. I'm sure it's the latter, Mike, that you said there, I'm, you know, it seems that Russia and China are, um, they're in this kind of an uneasy alliance right now, right? Where China's buying up a lot of the Russian en- energy. Um, and yeah, I'm sure Russia's well aware of China's goals, which is a, a yuan supplanting the dollar. And so, you know, it wouldn't make any sense. I don't think there's any sort of incentive for Russia to be that public and overt about any kind of Bitcoin 
strategy right now. On the other hand, we have heard, uh, not Putin, but I believe, you know, people in his inner, inner circle have made noises about Bitcoin. And, you know, that was always done a little bit tongue in cheek and sort of it was a kind of tro trollish thing that they were doing. But at the same time, many a true word is spoken in jest. And so I'm sure there is some, you know, research or thought in Russia about that going forward and especially to your point mike i think it makes sense for them and it make, makes sense for any energy producer um because the great thing about bitcoin is it's 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 sort of almost one-to-one -one relationship with energy right and if you're exporting energy that's one you know source of of, of revenue but if you for some reason cannot um export your energy uh, bitcoin's great in terms of picking up the slack right and you can you can divert that energy to mining bitcoin so i think absolutely makes sense and i think that's where we're going to see whether it's you know an overt publicly announced thing pro probably not but we're definitely going to see more experiments um whether it's sanctioned by the government and it's it's done in the private sector or whether it's done you know by directly by the government in terms of you know ways to produce bitcoin using energy whether it's wasted energy whether it's energy during crisis when they can't export the energy whether it's excess energy whether it's used as a, as a, as a weapon where you say okay we're going to actually stop sending you our gas or our oil and we're going to use that for bitcoin now um it absolutely any any country who is producing oil who's exporting oil or gas um it, i think that's where we're going to see the the um uh, first experiments with bitcoin what, what i'm curious what i'm you know there's no way I any of us could possibly know. It'd be interesting to be a fly on the wall, though. It's because China's got the big Belt and Road Initiative going on in um, El Salvador. So it's not like they're unaware of of what we get doing with Bitcoin and whatnot, right? So what you know, what are, what are the back, what do the talks look like between um, the uh, the China state and then? the El Salvadorian state when it comes to this kind of thing? Are they allowing it? Are they promoting it? You know, it, 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 it would be interesting to be able to hear what that what the discussions on that look like. Yeah, the the, the Belt and Road thing's really interesting. I mean, it's it's also it's going everywhere, right? Like Middle East over they want they want to start approaching Europe from the east. They, they're going into Africa <clears throat> and, and and now South and Central America. So it's from what I've heard is like um, from the surface from the american perspective like it's really easy to assume that everything that happened with bolsonaro and uh um getting lula in there in brazil was like the work of the the globalist american empire but i mean uh i think one of the big speculations is that it's actually china behind it not america um and uh and i think yeah we will start to see china's influence grow more and more in both central and south america and that'll get really interesting like once they start moving um this might be a, a little ways away but if they start moving like military bases into the area i think we're going to start to see uh and like maybe, maybe if there was a uh maybe in the long-term future there could eventually be like a proxy war between america and china that takes place in some somewhere like central america and when that happens we'll very quickly see the uh the narrative around what defines an invasion and who's the instigator when a war begins uh, will be very much different. And in fact, the exact opposite of what we were told about Russia and Ukraine, if something like that happens. Sort of, yeah. sort of like a missile crisis part two, right? I would, I, I, it would be very sad to see that happen in El Salvador. I mean, I have heard, I have seen some of those things and that that, that is something that's got a little bit concerning that like uh, Bukele is very much in the, 
um, he's, he's, he's like taking on debt basically from, um, from China and he's going to be owing them favors in the future. Mm. Well, and maybe this is one thing that's kind of keeping him safe to some, you know, with, with his Bitcoin experiment or allowing him the freedom to do this is, um, the IMF and, and others knowing that he has that optionality, right? Maybe he's just trying to play off the two regimes against each other while, while making his Bitcoin bet, which is his sort of, that's, that's the way forward for the El Salvador. If that, if that pays off, then he, you know, they can get in kind of independence that way. Um, but while, while he's trying to get there, he needs, he needs to play the two major powers off against each other, I guess. Well, El Salvador is not really in a position to ever be independent, right? A, a country of 6 million is always going, at least the way the world is structured now is going to be somewhat, uh, under a vassal state of some power bigger than it somewhere, right? Like whether it's the U S China, Russia, you know, like they're, 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 Latin America has never been in a position to not be a colonial, uh, landing pad, at least since, you know, 1492, right? Even even if the Bitcoin thing was to really you know be a roaring success, let's say we were hundred x up in ten years' time or something, and El Salvador continued down that path, do you think that would give them like a a, a base whereby they could you know make make smart investment decisions and kind of get their independence in a way that you know smaller countries, uh, I guess you know you know like Singapore, Switzerland, these kind of sm- smaller places who seem seem to be able to find that sweet spot where they're benefiting from the global hege- hegemon rather than you know being under under its thumb do you think they could move move themselves to a more beneficial situ- position yeah to be honest i don't I know man hard really hard power make... talks yeah i i wouldn't want to uh, time i i don't want to make any public uh, predictions about these kinds of things because i know i'll be wrong it's like betting it's come like on Mike, come on we all want to be wrong come on let's bet some money <laughs> you want to be wrong you want to be wrong publicly i'm not going to pull a, a marty Go hard uh, in the paint. Come on, man. From Let's these make, some, <laughs> make some wild declaration that we that cannot possibly be true. Give it to me. El Salvador. Uh, what's the most wild prediction? Bukele becomes the king of America. Oh, <laughs> rock and roll. I like that one. Of Bring the it Americas. On. The Americas. <laughs> the, the Americas. <laughs> he's the new, he's the new uh, Aztec emperor. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, um, yeah, I guess this was, uh, do, do you guys have any more to say on um, how you think this can play out for Bitcoin? I mean, we talked a little bit more about the, the geopolitical stuff and um, like, what is it, I guess, what does it mean? We talked about maybe nation state level adoption of Bitcoin. D- do you see this culminating? Like if let's just say you're a Chinese citizen or a Russian citizen or a American citizen, um, is what all of this geopolitical stuff going on where like different monetary systems are competing people like different empires want different world reserve currencies to emerge um is this going to culminate in bitcoin being outlawed completely in one of these countries i mean so far china has been the most aggressive anti-bitcoin out of the three um but who knows what could happen in the future as the dollar starts to lose its world reserve status I've I've thought a lot about this, and um, you know what one it's kind of hard, right? Because how do you out, outlaw math? Um, and you know that's that's the power of Bitcoin. But two, I think just in in terms of incentives, I think rather than outlaw 
Bitcoin, you, you probably as a nation state want to have as much of it in your own territory as possible. And at some point, I'm, to be honest, I'm more concerned about a 6102-like attack where um, as Executive Order 6102 where uh, Roosevelt um, had that executive order which, which forbid and, you know, and private American citizens from owning gold, right? And I think um, there will be a similar thing I expect in the future, whether it's in the States or somewhere else, where um, the, the, the U.S., Government, I you know, or somewhere would try and seize the gold of the citizens, and they and they because they need it to back up their failing currency. And also, I mean, we've kind of seen the president of precedent of this, where American, not the government, but then governmental sort of um, you know institutions, the um, Department of Justice or what have you, has seized Bitcoin from you know quote unquote criminals. And that, as far as I know, I mean, in some cases it has been auctioned off, but in some cases it's still sitting on. The balance sheet somewhere, which are you know the, whether it's the government or, or these 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 um, sort of semi-government agencies. So you know I've seen, we've kind of seen that precedent set already. I think even you could you could argue that the U.S. is the largest Bitcoin holder in the world, a nation state right now. Um, and it'll, a lot of Bitcoiners are kind of naively champ, championing this and they're saying it's great and I'm, and the U.S. should keep keep the um, coins on their balance sheet. But I see I see that and think no, that's just the the, the preclude to six one zero two. It's a dangerous precedent to set um and so yeah i expect more more that more that you'll have to you 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 know the government's going to be coming for your bitcoin they're going to want it for themselves not that they're going to try to try and ban it with the 6102 that's the way it works it essentially does outlaw private private ownership self-sovereign holding of your keys and uh and then that's how they clamp down and like yeah you can still it's it's like you said it's just a little bit of computer code and software and it's very hard to outlaw such a thing but nevertheless you could be putting your, you could be forced to choose between putting yourself at serious legal risk, or um, handing it over, right? Yeah, I, th- I think that's 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 the point. So already, I mean, part, partly in my mind and sort of my intellectual journeys, but you know, I've always tried to be a good citizen. You obey the laws, you pay your taxes. Everyone should pay their taxes. Um, and you know, I would like to continue to do that forward. But I think as every every Bitcoiner, you know, as the, the as you get to that point down the rabbit hole, when you really start game planning how this is going to play out you think well at some point i'm either going to, i'm probably going to have to choose between keeping my bitcoin or being an outlaw or maybe even moving relocating into a different jurisdiction and for me you know i'm not really comfortable with being an outlaw i i i want to be a law abiding citizen blah 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 and so i'm i'm sort of considering more that path like the three flag thing where okay if japan outlaws private bitcoin ownership i would move to el salvador or somewhere like that but uh, yeah i definitely think every every bitcoin is going to have um have to make a tough decision at some point and i don't know what the time frame is going to be but it's it's uh, as as the as the government you know bankruptcies and and, and uncovered you know liabilities in uh, um, medicare etc come become more and more apparent and the governments get more and more desperate i think that's the point when we can expect the 6102 and and, and for them to try and seize the bitcoin to, to to shore up their own balance balance sheets no doomer dash they don't have to go to that level it's pretty sad. like they can just make the incentives of like holding it on um the, the 401ks they can they can ease you in because most people don't have bitcoin anyway and they can very easily get you to start handing handing them money to hold um bitcoin on 401k paper bitcoin things like that so that they so that uh uh control can rest in their hands they actually have the keys you just have a paper derivative of that you shuffle back and forth amongst other people while you hold the crappy uh dollar derivative thereof i don't think we have to i don't i 
it, it's hard for me to believe because you know it's hard for me to believe that they'll go full full retard on you know uh, banning it or whatever just because it's we live in a we live in a media age and it'll be easy to get out there there's also easier ways to go about doing it just through you, you know you tweak a, a tax law here uh, you tweak a tax law there most people you know the vast majority 99 percent of americans or anybody else does not own any bitcoin um just like we do not own any bitcoin um the so the ability of them to um get most people into a position where they want it but can't but don't really have it won't require won't require a big hammer i don't think i hope you're right man but as they say um you know, hope, hope for the best, prepare for the worst. And I think a worst case scenario is when, when we get more, when failing currencies become more apparent. And as you say, you know, now in the internet age, that information soon gets out there. Um, you know, we're going to see Bitcoin as one of the, I think, best best ways people have as a sort of life raft or an exit from the failing system. And um, and so I, I do think there's going to be a lot, a lot more interest going forward into owning Bitcoin. Also, Bitcoin's sort of different to gold. And we, we spoke about this in, in the multi-sig segment, but um, in, in the way that it's it's far more easy to custody Bitcoin than it is to custody gold and to move around with Bitcoin. And so I'm not sure how their little their little play that definitely worked with gold, which was increasing the amount of paper and, and having people, you know, uh, custody with, with, with institutions. I don't know how that, if, if that's really going to work with Bitcoin. And if it doesn't, then they're going to have to be more direct with how they come and get it. But, but yeah. That's so. I'm a, uh, yeah, I think we're, we we probably at dis, uh, disagreement there. Well, to tie this into Japan, this conversation is. Uh, I think we we all agree on the perspective that as far as like international relations goes, um, Japan is controlled by the globalist American Empire. But at the same time, Japan does have its own currency, and its central bank is one of the um, largest ones in the world. Uh, and most influential ones in the world. So um, do we see a scenario where like without it being demanded by the Americans that Japan would uh, start to embrace some kind of sentiment and policy structure around Bitcoin independently, whether that's positive or negative? As in the, the Japanese government and having a, a, strat- a Bitcoin strategy? Yeah, yeah. Whether it's like, okay, we're just going to outlaw uh, Bitcoin right. in Japan because we need to protect the yen, even though nobody told us to do it, no Americans told right. us to do it, or or maybe oh maybe yeah, the opposite. No way. So I think um, I think they're absolutely clueless from what I've seen. I, I, you know, they're they're, com- they're they're at the shitcoin phase. Um, they never really went to the Bitcoin phase, um, and so every, every every like major Japanese corporation or government um, uh, spokesperson that I hear talk about quote-unquote crypto they're talking about web 3.0 and the metaverse and all of this absolute nonsense um and so they just they just don't have a clue and so um i don't think they they're going to have the knowledge or the capability to even set a strategy themselves and ultimately i think they'll just end up following the line uh that comes out of the u.s yeah hard to argue with that one i mean everything that i've i've seen from 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 our japanese brothers here does not leave me with uh uh, leave me with a great impression that they have the slightest idea what's going on. They hear a buzzword, they take the buzzword, and hopefully they can fill some NFTs is, is as far as they've taken it. Yeah, that's unfortunate. <laughs> All right, well, um, I think this is this might be a good place to wrap up. Do you guys have any... Um closing thoughts on all the geopolitical stuff and Bitcoin, nation-state level Bitcoin adoption? No, I loved it. It was great, Mike. I, too, too bad we didn't get to do our 15-part series, but... <laughs> 
we can continue on. Yeah, we'll continue it. We'll maybe we'll take a little break from it and we'll come back and we'll we'll continue it from the on the topic of uh, color revolutions because there's a lot to discuss there. I mean, like Ukraine, uh, Syria, Libya, um, and many others. So, rock and roll. Dash, any last closing remarks? Uh, yeah. Well, for me, you know, I've I've really enjoyed the uh, the series. Um, and you know i would just my final thought there would be you know we as bitcoiners we definitely have to keep a close eye on the uh geopolitics on the news um it is going to affect us as they say you might not be interested in politics but politics is certainly interested in you and that is absolutely true and so i think let's let's keep laser focused on 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 watching what's going on uh we'll definitely be reporting back on from what our findings on on this podcast going forward um also i'd like to say just from a, a personal level i'm just hoping Bitcoin stays as pleb money for as long as possible. I actually don't want um, an ETF. I don't want uh, nation state adoption. I don't want in- the institutions to come. Um, you know, for me, this is a pleb movement. It's grassroots movement. Long may it continue that way. Um, it won't be that way forever. And so, yeah, um, for anyone who's listening, who's kind of interested in, in, in Bitcoin, is kind of thinking of getting involved, I would say, dive in with both feet um get get yourself educated get yourself up to speed because um you know um we're, we're in kind of an, an idyllic phase now i think where where this is still a movement of the people um and so yeah um just um just look forward to keep keep on discussing these topics with with, with you all and, and doing this podcast uh, bi-weekly and um yeah i look forward to the next topic well good doomer dash meta mike and me andy Find us on Twitter or Noster at Tokyo Citadel. Find us online through our site, tokyocitadel.com. Support us on Fountain with a thousand sat boost, building sovereignty, privacy, and hope into the Tokyo Citadel. See you next time.